Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before I introduce our guest, I'm excited to share with you a project I've been working on for the last few months. Over the last 14 months, the team and I have spoken with law firm leaders, innovators, entrepreneurs, as well as knowledge professionals. We're hosting a summit with these rock stars to cover actionable strategies and tactics that you can implement for your practice. It's a completely free event and of course will be held virtually and you can register for it at fringelegal.com slash summit. That's S-U-M-M-I-T summit. It's absolutely free. And even if you can't make the date, I encourage you to register so you can actually get access to the recording afterwards. All right, now on to the show. We kick off the third season with the wonderful Michelle DeStefano, who is the founder and executive director of Law Without Walls, professor of law at the University of Miami. She's an author, speaker, independent consultant, and facilitator to law firms, corporates, legal departments, and startups on innovation and technology, as well as culture creation, teaming, cross-practice, and cross-border initiatives. Quite a lot she's been busy with over the last few years. She is also the author of a handful of books, and we dive into quite a few of these topics and more. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Michelle DeStefano today. Michelle is the author of the Legal Upheaval book and all of the good stuff that you heard um, in the intro section of this podcast. Michelle, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And so firstly, I'll say this, as embarrassing as it is, I'm a huge fan of yours. I really enjoyed the book. I think I devoured the book. I've mostly finished. I'm in the last section of the book, but I certainly devoured it in about a week and a half. And it was it's a really cool book for me because there are so many notes in each of the chapters. That I spent probably as much time investigating all of the little footnotes and endnotes that you put in as I did reading the book. So thank, thanks so much for writing it. And I just wanted to dive into some of those topics today. Awesome. I have to say, though, as a law professor, <laughs> hearing that somebody actually looked at my footnotes is like music to my ears. So I think you're the only person that has ever told me that. So uh, thank you. That was my holiday present. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. No, no, fantastic. Well, there's, I think like there's like 20, 30 pages of them. So yeah, it, it was absolutely a goldmine because some of those things I'd come across in the past. You referenced some of the books that I don't think are anything to do with law, but are equally applicable. So that was really good to, good to see. And it actually helped me create some of those connections from a lot of the business books and general books. So no, absolutely my pleasure. And I, I guess... You've spoken quite a lot about Law Without Walls. You've spoken quite a lot about um, some of the key concepts in the book. So rather than revisit some of those things, if it's okay, I would like to sort of talk about some of the things that at least stood out to me. And the book was published in 2018. Is that right? Yes, in okay. July of 
2018. Okay, mm -hmm. perfect. So we're recording this in December 2019. Uh, so about 18 months ha has passed. So I, I guess in that time, do you think, and I know the answer to this my, for myself, but do you think there's a lot of difference in what you what you wrote in the book and how the profession might change in the future that's already come to fruition or do you think that's still to come now and especially talking about innovation how clients gcs and lawyers and law firms should work together do you think we're starting to see some of the changes actually come to the surface now so i don't know that a lot has changed in 18 months mm. um I think, though, that the appetite for understanding how to better meet clients' needs and collaborate has changed. And I would say that for me, as a writer, if I were rewriting my book right now, one of the things that I would tweak is, yes, there's been a call for collaboration, mm -hmm. but the words I would use are, um, and I mentioned one of them in my book, but not as much as I would like, is there's a call for proactive co-collaboration together. I think if you took all of my interviews of all the in-house counsel from around the world and put them into one of those wordograms, mm -hmm. I think the word that would come out the most would be together. And I feel like that's a slight shift in the last 18 months that clients are pushing, whether that's in business clients for an in-house lawyer, internal, mm -hmm or GCs and in-house lawyers for law firms, clients are pushing lawyers to work in real time to gather on things, to go on, for example, sprints, much like uh, real businesses do mm -hmm. sprints in terms of product development. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because uh, I agree with you and I, I do wonder about this because I wonder if that's because of, for me at least, that the people that I follow, speak to are naturally in that space. So there's a little bit of that selection bias, or if this is actually that's happening in the wider profession. But I think it is interesting that there has been a larger call for collaboration, but how, how difficult it is for a business to change over time. And of course, 18 months isn't a very long time in the grand scheme of things, uh, but I, we're coming to a tipping point. One, one of the things that was in the, I just started getting to in the third part of the book was around when you asked uh, the CIOs and the clients and so on, on how well they think uh, firms should, firms are innovating, right? On a grade of one to one to 10, it was, and generally, or how much there is a need for it. And normally it was coming out to be seven or higher. Um, do you think that that's becoming more prevalent where if you were to go back and re-interview some of these clients, they'll actually, because especially since they had gone through this exercise with you, they would have pressed harder. And I wonder if this, there is this disconnect in people wanting to do these things, but they don't know what questions to ask. And I'm hoping as they spoke with you, some of these questions will start coming to the surface for them as well. So would they give a different answer today, I wonder? I think they would give a slightly different answer because the word or the call for innovation mm -hmm. in and of itself has become a little hackneyed and overused and everybody's pretty <laughs> sick of it. And I think as well that my mantra is that the call for innovation is really a call for service transformation in disguise, that what 
clients are really asking for is a different way of servicing and working with them. And that in itself is an innovation in terms of process. I think, so I think that would change. I yeah. think that as well in the last 18 months, we have seen a, a, a change in and more people at firms taking on roles like the chief innovation officer role. Mm -hmm. And I've written an article since my book about the law firm chief innovation officer role and how that um, has been used effectively and ineffectively. It's called goals, roles, and holes. And so we are seeing law firms attempting to fill the need with some people that might have talent in the area, but I still think there are gaps. Yeah, and one of the things that, that stood out to me is this echo of there is a there's a higher propensity for more for less, but instead what you at least heard from a handful of GCs would actually it's not so much more for less, it's more for more. Clienting more want clients wanting more of the lawyer or the in-house counsel more of the time rather than just one matter at a time. It's becoming more sticky and more ever present throughout the entire project. So they actually put on and take this role of product uh, project managers, as well as being a, a legal expert. And that's becoming very real. And it's something that you start touching on in the lawyer skills delta as well. I think that's definitely true for in-house. And I think uh, it's like the trickle down effect. And I'm not talking about economics, mm. believe me. <laughs> the When the business asks in-house, to work with them, they want them in there in the moment. It no longer works for, for example, if you're working at a bank, right? It doesn't work for the bank to be creating right. new products for <laughs> consumers, finish it, then hand it to the legal and have legal review it and say what's right or wrong with it or, or make recommendations and hand it back to product development. They need the lawyers in real time on in an agile way in developing the product and giving advice as it goes along. and the lawyers that are going to be the best at it are the ones that are going to provide both business and legal advice, which most in-house lawyers are, are forced to do pretty immediately once they go in-house. So I, I'm definitely, I think we're seeing that. And I think this trickle-down effect is then in-house actually reaches out to their um, law firm lawyers mm -hmm. that they like working with, and they want them to get on the boat, in the boat with them. And, and, and they're pushing them to get in the boat, make recommendations, even on the spot and don't want the lawyers to go off and spend a couple of days or a week thinking about it. They want them to work through it together with them. Yeah, and at the very least, and this certainly seemed quite a repetitive statement that was made by the GCs that you interviewed, at the very least, they want the information that's presented to them from the research or whatever it might be that the, the lawyer and the law firms have done to be presented in a way that that the in-house counsel or the clients can actually act on rather than getting a stack of <laughs> a stack of documents or opinions saying this is the executive summary here is how you can go and action that and in order for for a lawyer to be able to do that in order for any team to be able to do that you have to understand what it is that the your client wants to be able to do right how will they use the information that you're providing for them going one level deeper in terms of 
not just asking the question, but understanding, or if you're being asked a question, understanding why they might ask you that question. What do they really want to know rather than just giving the most, the immediate and the most obvious answer that comes to mind? Well, and ironically, that situation you bring up is really that they want less, less is more. So they're asking for less of all the CYA will cover your sleep. Can't say that on the <laughs> podcast documents on the back. Yeah. And, and they want, um, you know, they want the advice. And I've heard in health council say, we'll give you in writing some assurances that we won't sue you for your advice. You won't be held liable for it, but we want your advice. And they also want it shorter and they want it in their language and not just business language. I mean, in their language. So yeah. that it's in their corporate speak. If you go to different corporations, the corporate culture is different by every different corporation. And even the tone and the voice and the way people craft emails is different. And in-house want their outside lawyers to learn that voice so that not only are they providing the advice in the format they want and in a way that can be forwarded and understood and not all legal speak, but also in the tone and actual creative cadence of the in-house. Um, client. And I think that's an important and an important and big shift because that's hard to do, very hard to do, especially when you're working with many different clients. Yeah. I'd like to touch on the other thing you mentioned, which yeah. is the why. Mm -hmm. I would say that that is the number one, the number one thing that lawyers don't spend long enough on. And that is asking why before jumping to solve. I do it. I have a great <laughs> example of me doing it a couple months ago with a client. We, we want to please. We want to solve problems and we want to serve our clients. And sometimes that desire impedes us from just asking some basic why questions that would really help us so we don't waste time. Yeah, and I mean, you, you touch on it and as a as an academic, I'm sure you know of it as well, especially when you go to law school, you are taught the skill of becoming a problem solver and a lot of the time by the time you're actually speaking to your clients you've already conceptualized what their problem might be you've already figured out the solution so inherently it's so difficult to then shift your mindset in a live in a live environment to start thinking of something that may be completely out of the box or that might be a creative way of solving the problem in a different way so you put it well that is, it's as much about being able to solve the problem as well as be able, as well as become a problem finder, and and that that's really really important. And I love the quote, and it's from the, obviously from the book, and uh, start with why, and that becomes absolutely important. And I, <laughs> I definitely make the same mistake all frequently as well, and I sometimes catch myself on it, not all the time, but it's it's an important skill to learn, and I've had good mentors that help me hone that in over time. But it is a critical skill for lawyers that's missing for sure. So if you go online, you, anybody can um, Google or Bing five whys. And if actually, if you ask why five times, hmm. and I practice this <laughs> with attorneys a lot, and they beg me, they say, I want to ask a what question. Can I ask a what question? And I say, no. And actually, what they don't understand also when they first play the game, if you will, is right. asking the five whys is really hard. Because if you don't really listen to the answer, that the person gives you, you run out of whys and you don't get anywhere with it. So the person asking the five whys has to be really empathetic and listen really well. 
I play this game with my teams in Law Without Walls mm-hmm. called the Problem Plane Game. And and that's P-L-A-N-E. And I show a picture of two planes on two different like planes as in space. Mm-hmm. You know how a plane can, you can be, you know, 10,000, 30,000 feet above another plane. Or right. maybe that's mathematically wrong, but <laughs> both going in the same direction. So that's, this is an example I say. We can both be on a plane going the same direction, headed to Miami. And think we're in the same place, but actually we're in two different planes, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. So it's a silent exercise where after we've done the five whys, every single person on the team has to rewrite down the exact more narrow problem they think they're trying to solve. It's amazing the differences you get, even after people think they've solved the problem. Mm-hmm. And if everybody on a team is collaborating, isn't on the same problem plane, meaning isn't solving the same problem experienced by the same target audience, Yeah, you'll never actually get to the best solution, let alone maybe even a solution that everybody buys in to. Yeah. And it's the example of, and you mentioned it in your book as well about in the work that Daniel Simmons did with the invisible gorilla, that you also, as you become more experienced, you have the inattention blindness where you can't notice something because you're not really looking for it. And especially lawyers who are skilled experts and are often looking for certain cues within the work they're doing or the scenario they're faced with will miss something so obvious and i guess that's why going going back to something you said originally that proactive co-collaboration works well together especially if you include people from other disciplines because they they will absolutely approach something from a different viewpoint and they may also have in in attention blindness for sure but because they're blind to only one viewpoint, they can identify things that you as a lawyer might miss and vice versa. So if you do get these multidisciplinary teams, often you will actually start identifying things that may seem seemingly obvious to the other person, but they could be absolutely a light bulb moment when it comes to looking at this issue at hand. And I think that when you have a multidisciplinary group, And certain people, let's say there's a group of people and two of them are not trained as lawyers Mm. and never wanted to be trained as lawyers. (laughs) And let's say everyone's at equal. They'll ask questions about what a lawyer says because they don't understand it and not be embarrassed about asking, well, why do they do it that way? And what does that mean? And there are very simple questions that they shouldn't actually know the answer to. And they're unafraid to ask because they're not scared of looking stupid that they don't know something about the law that they should. And what I find with lawyers is that somewhere along the the way, we let our fear of risk of looking stupid overcome the curiosity that I know most lawyers have going into law school. Why is that? Why would you do it that way? Why is the world that way? Why is justice that way? Why is our system that way? So when a client has a problem, some of the whys that um, a lawyer might want to ask we might hold back because it's going to make it clear when we ask that we don't know the answer. Yeah. And, and the point of the five whys is actually that point. You're not supposed to know the answer. And even if you do, that person needs to say it with their own words. So you guys can get on the same problem plane. I mean, it's sort of like a dog chasing the tail situation, but I I kind of believe that curiosity and creativity are the two attributes that are going to make 
the most successful professionals of the future. Yeah. And I mean, that that's so true. And it was quite interesting. So I, I trained as a lawyer, as a barrister, but I didn't practice. And I, I had a, I have to say, I had a really odd experience when I was reading the book as I was reflecting ahead of this recording, that when I read the book initially, when I was reading a lot of the the GC interviews, I, I was naturally more defensive than maybe I should be, especially because I've never really been in that experience, being in that situation where I was just like, oh, this seems overly critical of the lawyers. And I, I certainly wonder for practicing lawyers, and certainly those have been practicing for a while, they may experience the same thing. And eventually there were, there's probably still more than two ways of looking at it, but I was like, okay, I can look at this as not lawyer bashing. It, it wasn't, but that's how it seemed initially. But thinking more about it, it was like, actually, this is a fantastic manual of being able to get into the mindset of how are many different GCs and others from, and clients actually from around the world to really understand what they want a lawyer to be able to do so you can actually serve them more successfully. So ultimately you become more successful at work, but it's so difficult to put that out of your mind when you start adding emotion to that at the wrong time. And it was a bizarre experience because I did catch myself as I was reviewing this, like, why do I feel so defensive about this? And I can only imagine that maybe the experience of some of the people reading it, um, especially if they're some of these individuals might be one of their clients. Yeah. Well, and uh, I often speak at law firm retreats mm -hmm. and I can feel the room, <laughs> feel the way you're, you felt when you read my book. Right. And usually I can get a laugh by saying, well, I told you lawyers were thin-skinned or, hey, so you're feeling skeptical, right? Gotcha. Look up on the board. That's one of the other ways we test very high is skepticism. So I tried to get lawyers to open their mind to this view of us and accept it because in my mind, what makes us really great at our jobs, really great, you know, the fact that we're strategic, the fact that we can see the forest of the trees and see every branch, the fact that we're critical and almost ruthless and we're great at complex problem solving and we love a really nutty problem and we're confrontational and unafraid to get in, in there and dig. Right. Those things make us great at being lawyers. Yet they can also get in the way of us serving this other role that we need to serve. And so I say, you know, what we need to do as lawyers is not, we don't, I'm not saying get rid of that other stuff. Believe me, right, that, right. that would be, <laughs> that's an op, but we need to figure out a way to, to, to add, to add on. But it's interesting because my sister, who's not a lawyer, read the book and she said, you shouldn't have called it legal upheaval, Michelle. You're the marketer. Why didn't you figure this out? <laughs> she said, you know, my eight years of marketing experience. I said, oh, what should I have called it? And she said, you should have called it leader upheaval. And I was like, that doesn't rhyme as well. He said, it sort of does. And he said, every, every senior um, leader should read this book so they can understand how to better leverage their lawyers, mm -hmm. how to better work with lawyers. And part two would work for almost any senior leader because a lot of that stuff could help anybody uh, open, uh, collaborate and lead uh, collaborative teams better. So I thought that was, that was interesting. And so, but thank you for sharing that with me. If I ever get to rewrite the book, maybe I'll find a way to, to prevent that 
that immediate defensive reaction. <laughs> and maybe I'm on my own. I don't think I am. And, and the and the you're other, not on your own. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I was. Uh, and the the other interesting thing was as I continued reading the book and repressing my defensiveness, I also realized that a lot of the things that the partners that you had interviewed from a law firm or the lawyers you had interviewed were saying exactly the same thing. So it's very much a disconnect where the the GCs are asking uh, lawyers to do certain things, the clients are asking in-house counsels to do the same thing, and lawyers are wanting their clients to ask them to do something in that way, right? So there is that disconnect there where there's certainly this desire to want to change, for lack of a better word, for in, uh, for innovation, to make something different happen. But there's a little bit of a miscommunication as well. And part of it is because there isn't a, to go back to a very early point we talked about initially, it's not really a good definition for what innovation means. People tend to just say, we want we want you to innovate with us. We want you to work with us better. We want you to do something innovative, but it's not really clear what that is. It's such a broad, broad categorization. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's And it's misused and confusing. I always say that it's a little bit like pornography. Um, <laughs> people know it when they see it, mm-hmm. and which isn't a great way to define anything. <laughs> a little distasteful, and I think people feel that way about the word innovation. and. People ask me all the time, Michelle, why didn't you include some innovations in your book? Well, number one, I had a whole other book that I have a draft of called Best Practices and Worst Practices. Number two, I felt like in that book that to include what I thought were innovations at the moment would very quickly become old news because what's innovative a year ago isn't innovative today. And lawyers and law firms and law companies we actually, we're not so resistant to change like people say we are. And actually, when we see someone else do something and it works, mm-hmm. we do it too. It's that first initial try, I think, that lawyers may not be as great at. So innovation is a constantly moving target, which is, and it's going to keep moving over the next 10 to 15 years. It's not like you, you reach, it's not like at the, you, know, you reach the top of Everest, you got there. Oh, we innovated. Now we're done. It's right. uh, perpetual. Yeah. And, and it needs to be that way, right? Because it, it should keep changing because business has changed. The economies, the global landscape, everything will change. And therefore the definition and maybe just the standard of what is considered innovation will change. And what is considered innovative today or what was considered innovative yesterday is just part of the norm now and that will just keep happening and that will keep shifting it's good news for us though because in (laughs) in terms of the law marketplace versus the rest of the world (laughs) since we haven't changed as rapidly as other professions when we make little itty bitty small incremental changes that have lasting value Mm -hmm. that can be innovative so small process changes, service changes, those things can be innovative. We're not being asked to create the next AI Einstein machine uh, yet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, they, those even those itty-bitty changes, as you call them, they, they compound over time and they result in some big, big shifts happening eventually. And sometimes it takes 
as long as you think it might. And sometimes it's a lot quicker. And some of these disruptions and innovations are, as you called it, big and hairy. And some of them are just these tiny noticeable changes that, that lead on to great value over time. And so there's two... Yeah. Two, two more things I wanted to make sure at least I, I cover. And one is this idea of the lawyer skills delta. And I, I particularly enjoyed it partly because it's just how you positioned it to begin with, which is the skills that the clients desire and also essentially a prediction towards what may be, what may be required over the next X years, let's call it 10 years. And it was quite interesting to see how, and I agree 100%, that lawyering and the legal expertise is not even included in this, right? That's just a bare minimum. That's a given that you should have that. And then you have the the three different levels, uh, the cost, collaboration, um, collaborate, uh, collaborative, creative problem solving, and and finding and innovation and how that leads to the client happiness overall. Would you mind just expanding a bit more on that? And I guess what I'm particularly interested in is your mindset. And as you, as you came up with this, what was, what drove you to come up with this framework? And do you still think that some of those things are as important now, or has that shift happened where maybe the cost is a given now, the cost acronym is a given now, and there is a maybe a different third tier. I can give you a little background, and I agree with you in terms of the cost skills maybe being a given, although they still cost time and mm. money to hone them, and law schools still aren't in the game as much as they should be to, to help prepare income our incoming uh, lawyers with those skills. So that's that's disheartening. So essentially, how did I come up with it? Well, over the course of the last 10 years, I have worked with over 250 teams with lawyers on them, multidisciplinary teams on a 16-week innovation journey. And what I found from these lawyers, many of whom, I mean, the age range was from 20 to 80. And what I found is that over the process of learning how to create a solution, how to actually innovate, that in that process, you hone the DNA of an innovator, and then you actually meet those new skill sets and mindsets that will delight the client. And so what one reason why I think design thinking hasn't hit or haven't, hasn't before Law Without Walls hit the law marketplace as much as it could have is because it was always described in a very messy way and described as if lawyers should suddenly be innovators. And what Law Without Walls is designed to do is, is not have you quit your day job. We don't expect anybody to become an entrepreneur. It's purposefully to learn how entrepreneurs and innovators approach problem solving. And in the process of actually innovating, you hone those skills, they become second nature. And that aha for me led me to write my book and, and also put together lawyer skills delta. It doesn't matter to me whether or not your business model is, is, is broken or not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even if it's working really well, I think the lawyer skills delta holds, holds true. And that if you hone the mindset, skill set, and behaviors of innovators, you will delight your clients. So yeah. it used to be back, back in the day, um, 25 years, 30 years ago, you 
you came out of law school and you were one of the best in your area, legal expertise, that was sufficient to get a job. I don't think that's true anymore. It may be true with the top five schools in, in, in the world, but not a huge percentage of attorneys do not graduate from those schools. Right. And so that those skills are, are expected. They're, every lawyer should be giving top-notch top um, legal advice and so the cost skills, which is an acronym, right, for concrete related to the organization, service related and, and driven in part by technology, because really there's nothing we do that doesn't have a technological component or use technology to deliver it. And those skills are, like you said, ones that now maybe aren't aspirational, but given. And those are like knowing how to project manage, having business acumen, understanding social media knowing the difference between branding and marketing, giving and receiving feedback. People always say to me, how can that be a concrete skill in this, this level, Michelle? And I say, well, I can actually teach you and you can learn how to give effective feedback. And I can actually teach you and you can learn how to receive feedback in the right way. You know, can't teach you to like either of those things, <laughs> but they are actually giving and receiving feedback is a skill you can hone and get better at. Uh, it, it still always maybe feels awkward and awful, but it can be done. And I agree with you, Ab, that that level, level one, which I came up with back in probably 2016, that's more and more of a given. And we have seen more and more law schools at least dip their toe in trying to teach those things. And more law schools with programs like Law Without Walls, where they're trying to teach not just the cost skills, but that second level that you mentioned, which is creative, collaborative problem finding and solving skills. And those are the skills that relate to that awful saying that people call them soft. And they're not soft. They're really, really hard. Things like empathy and self-awareness and humility and cultural competency and adaptability and flexibility and inclusiveness. And that's the middle, that's the middle tier. And the middle tier, interestingly, if you go map that onto lots of studies on the most successful inclusive leaders and the Mm -hmm. traits of successful inclusive leaders, they really map together well. And that's where this delta is pointing. And if I would make any change, I would say that what we're trying to do in teaching innovation is teaching leadership. And you do one and the same at the same time. I recently wrote a chapter in my new book called the new book that I co-edited with Gunther Dobras is called New Suits. And in there, I talk a lot about this idea of how do we teach lawyers to be leaders? And some law schools are now focusing on that. And I think teaching innovation is a way to teach leadership. And so I might tweak the delta in that way. But otherwise, I think it still holds true. And I think it will come, become true. Yeah. Uh, that's my hope, at least. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for sure. And those things, are, I agree so much with you know, the soft skill, as they're often called, is so, so difficult. And they apply across the entire business. And especially frequently, it's dismissed by people who are in a leadership position, whether they're leading their practice groups within a law firm or the entire firm, or certainly they might be leading a team, whatever it might be it becomes so imperative to spend time and deliberately practice 
these skills so you can get better over time to get feedback from others on how well you're doing because with innovation with any with any skill it's not really so much about how how good you think you are if you're delivering something to somebody else whether it's a service or a product or something else then really your level of understanding and your skills should only be judged by those actually experiencing it on the other side because the perception means a lot from that uh, from that point of view and if you look at really static clients and the part that you said in there about how, using this to delight your clients that's what clients want regardless of you know which vertical or horizontal you're in whether it's law or otherwise really you should be out there you're providing a service to be able to delight your clients and this is a huge gap that allows you to stand apart from your competitors and anyone else in this space so i totally agree and, and in fact that more senior leaders are even more rusty than they used to be at leading and that is because we're busier and human nature, when you first become a leader, the first time you have a team of people mm. who you are working with and leading, you're actually thinking about it. <laughs> well, am I doing this right? You may be reading some books on leading a team because it's the first time that you've been given this new responsibility and you're taking it really, really seriously. And as you get better and better at something, and as you continue to lead, not only do you get busier, not only do you have to say no more, I think though that we also stop actually focusing internally on what are we doing? How are we doing it? How can we be more effective? I mean, people, there's that awful saying, I think it's awful, <laughs> that there's no I, letter I, in yeah. the word team, T-E-A-M. And I say that's true, but there are two I's in innovation. And we need to focus on those I's as lawyers. One I is our identity as lawyers, because the minute we put our lawyer hat on, we act differently. It's been proven. There's lots of research on professional yeah. identity and how it affects us. And then the other eye is the individual. Chris Avery wrote this book called Teamwork is an Individual Skill, like 50 years ago. And his title is beautiful. And I would say that about leadership. Leadership is an individual skill. What do I mean by that? As an individual, we need to walk into every room focused on how we're behaving, what we can do to help the team move forward, whether that's order the pizza and let them figure it out, as opposed to actually fixing the situation, which of course lawyers like to do. And I think that more focus on the skills in the middle of the lawyer skills delta, every individual mm -hmm. focused on that, we'd all be better leaders and better at collaborating. Yeah, absolutely. And it's certainly something, and I'll share the diagram of the of the lawyer skill delta. It's been published elsewhere anyway, uh, but I'll share that diagram because it's worth studying and it's worth actually for everyone to, to examine. And actually, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book because at the end of each chapter, you have these reflection points and some of them are very brief and some of them are quite detailed actually. And it's worth using these to go away and have a conversation with your team, have a conversation within your firms and really get an understanding of where do you fall within each of these things? Because a lot of the skills and mindsets and so on, you do break them out and you, you write quite extensively about them. And it's worth really doing this a journey into self-awareness to understand where you are. 
Yeah, there's a lot of research out on cognitive bias mm-hmm. and the impact that just awareness of your cognitive biases can help a little bit. And I think that's true of our weaknesses, just keeping in mind what our weaknesses are, keeping them top of mind helps us in the moment compensate for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually have a handful of books on my on my bookshelf about cognitive bias and mental models, because both of those things, if you can really skill up your mental models, you can get to decisions much, much faster without having to think, without having to consciously spend so much time thinking through each individual grain of it. And if you have the biases, mm-hmm. you know exactly what to be mindful of. So you're not giving in to your biases. And actually, you don't have to completely dismiss your personality as part of that, but you should certainly be aware of where the biases lie. And you may still arrive at exactly the same decision, but it's a better informed decision and a well-weighted decision at that point. I, I completely agree. When in Law Without Walls, we have everybody take DISC, and DISC mm-hmm. is the personality yeah. assessment. And there's some harsh realities in there. <laughs> and that's true about yourself. And that's true when you read, when you take cognitive bias tests. It's really, it's, I, I don't know anyone that didn't have taken a cognitive bias test that hasn't been a little surprised because they didn't think they had that, he or she had that bias. Right. And I think that's, that loops us back to the beginning of your initial defensiveness in reading my book. I couldn't believe all the studies that said that lawyers, it's not just that we're low on empathy compared to other professionals. Hmm. We're just low on empathy. And that (laughs) kills me. I couldn't believe it. I too felt like you. That can't be true. Yeah. Can't be true. There was that. And and I think you go to the statistic that lawyers are, I I think a majority of lawyers also would be considered introverts, right? Which was shocking to me. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think that might change, at least given the students that I've been teaching over the last three to five years, that might change. And, and maybe as the roles that people with legal degrees have and how they're utilized changes, we might get a different mix. But yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting data point. And whether it holds true for you as an individual or not, it doesn't matter. The fact that a great percentage of practicing attorneys around the world, mm. that it does hold true, helps you understand how to work better with lawyers. Yeah. And I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I did want to just mention one more thing only because, and this is my bias coming through, this was by far my favorite chapter. If you could see the book, I mean, there's highlighting all over the book anyway, but this chapter is just, it just looks like a sea of highlighter. <laughs> and that's the, the fifth which chapter, one? which is, I'm it's about, yeah, it's the, it's the new value equation in law. And, I really enjoyed it because it talks about, I mean, you opened with a fantastic quote from Buffett, which says, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And especially because when you're in a such a service heavy business, the value is so, so important. And almost every point that you talk through in there and some very interesting examples as you use throughout the books, where you talk about the value is the exchange for what you give. Sorry, value is what you get in exchange for what you give, but value of a service like the one in law provides 
is often perceived value where the values assigned are subjective. And it's this subjectivity that people are paying for. You give an example about 501 butterfly genes, which is a little bit random, uh, but I get the point. Um, <laughs> it was memorable. At I least. did work at Levi's for yeah. almost five years. So yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was memorable at least. And it's this realization that clients are saying that they actually value innovation, but it's not a linear relationship there. And it may just mean that they will consider you for these uh, RFIs, these RFPs and so on later on down the line, rather than exclude you. These kinds of realizations are so important because a lot of the work is changing and linking that with collaborating across teams and you pulling on Heidi Gardner's research around collaboration to show the kind of impact you can actually have to the network that you actually end up with and the value that you eventually provide is absolutely profound, right? The annual revenue per client triples if you're collaborating more when more than actually two, two practice groups collaborate is, is insane. I, I like that chapter a lot. And one of the reasons why I wrote that chapter was because I believe that the firms specifically and law companies that figure out how to leverage what marketing people know mm -hmm. about brand value that is subjective and not as um, easily measured. If law firms could figure out how to leverage that knowledge and put that together with the research on collaboration, wow. I mean, imagine where you could go with it. It's almost antithetical, though, to what's happening right now in the marketplace where we're operationalizing legal departments and putting metrics in to measure um, success and measure progress. Mm. Sometimes value is hard to measure, and it's based on a person's overall feeling about the service or the brand. And that's something that marketing and people that are trained in marketing are really familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeremy Coleman, who's a part of the innovation team at Norton Rose Fulbright, he, he, he says it quite well where lawyers are very good at the what, but in terms of, and that's in terms of, sort of the quality of good legal advice. And now there's, there needs to be a shift in how, right? How do you deliver this advice, this product, this service in the most effective and the most effective and efficient way? And of course, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but th these are really, really interesting times as law firms are starting to change and they're focusing on packaging multiple services together. They're creating products and really you do need to bring in a lot of this marketing knowledge, expertise, and learnings from the decades of experience most marketing firms have and figure out how do you actually get clients and the outside world to perceive greater value in what you're providing to them? Totally agree. I mean, one of my main messages is the world has moved from what to how, <laughs> how we do things. And I also agree with Daniel Pink that to sell is human and that lawyers our salespeople and we should be and learning how to package things is as important as what we do and so for example i run internal programs at big corporations that are modeled after law without walls and with the internal teams made up of lawyers and business professionals i still make them brand their solution and they i constantly get pushback 
why do we have to, why do we have to give this a name or a tagline or a look or a feel? We're so-and-so corporation. And my pushback is, well, because if you only have 30 seconds in an elevator in front of the CEO to convince him or her mm. to invest in this, if you package it right with the right tagline and the right feel, you'll get, you'll get another five minutes. <laughs> and without that, without that packaging, without changing how you pitch it, you might not get another chance. Yeah, very, very true. And that's a great place to start wrapping it up. I this this was a fantastic conversation. I wish you disagreed with me a lot more than than and I disagreed with you a bit more because it would have been even more fun. But this was fantastic. What a great book for anyone who hasn't had a chance to pick it up. The book is called Legal Upheaval and it's made up of three parts on why lawyers should actually want to hone their mindset, skills and behaviors, how to approach it and actually putting the concept into actions. We didn't even get into the last part of this book, which is very, very practical and to how do you actually put these innovation in innovation cycles in practice and in your own environment. Uh, there's so much wonderful things packed here. And you, Michelle, you talked about working on a new book. Do you want to talk about that a bit more or is that, is that still too early? So I'm actually working on two new books. One is a handbook that more thoroughly flushes out the three, four, five method of innovation mm -hmm. that I've tested on 250 teams, multidisciplinary teams with lawyers on them. And it provides actual exercises to go with each of the five steps to a project of worth and details them and also has a section on um, best and worst practices. And that is in the works right now. And the other book that I'm working on is a book that I'm working on with Bjarna Talman. And it is a book that's designed to predict the um, way lawyers will work together in the future and the key roles that lawyers will play or people with legal degrees will play. And we're going to start by showing five scenarios 10 years ago, five scenarios today, and maybe five scenarios in the future. So we're hoping it's going to be kind of fun and story-like, but also yeah. put some meat around the bones of all these predictions for what the future will look like. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to both of those things. And fun and story-like is absolutely a good way of going with this book, um, with any book, really. And that's part of the reason why I enjoyed Legal Upheaval so much. It was such an easy read. And it was it has a lot of uh, personality in it. And you talked about your teenagers in there quite a lot, especially uh, at the moment where Don't your daughter... Don't tell them. Had... Then they'll read it. Don't tell them. <laughs> the right. word is out. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was good. And it's, a lot of your personality came through it, which is a fantastic thing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And if people want to find out more, get in touch, what's the best way to do that? So you can email me at md at law.miami.edu. You can tweet to me. You can visit my website, movelaw.com. And I'm pretty accessible. Find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And I will list all of these things and many of the resources we talked about in the, in the show, in the show notes. So people can find that at fringelegal.com. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much. This was so great. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.